1: On a cold winter's day in 1649, Tuesday the 30th of January to be precise, a crowd assembled outside the palace of Whitehall in London, when execution scaffold had been erected in front of the banqueting house. They were about to witness one of the most extraordinary events in British history, the execution of their king, Charles I. Other monarchs had been murdered by rivals or slain in battle. But never before had a king or queen of England been put on trial, accused of treason against England by using his power to pursue his personal interest rather than the good of the country. The very idea would have been simply unimaginable, until it happened for real. At about two o'clock in the afternoon, Charles put his head on the block after saying a prayer and signalled the executioner when he was ready by stretching out his hands. He was then beheaded with one clean stroke, and so started a unique constitutional experiment, the one and only Republic in England's history. Welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast, the English Civil War, 1642-1651. The set of events around this period of political instability has divided posterity, not only its significance and impact on the nation, but its naming. From the period of the Restoration in 1660, when the Republic ended, until the 19th century, while Royalist and Tory perspectives dominated, the common phrase was the Rebellion, or the Great Rebellion, or also the Troubles. The same perspective produced the phrase the interregnum to represent the Republic as a deviation from the healthy norm of monarchy. In the Victorian age, the balance of public sympathy swung from the King's cause to the Parliament's, and the presentation of the events not as an aberration, but as a stage in the country's progress towards the present. Then, in the 20th century, the term English Revolution cast it as the first modern revolution, the precursor of the French or Russian revolutions. The present term of civil war stresses the internal ruptures which occurred across English society. Some historians today would prefer the British civil wars to push back against the Anglo centricity that permeated the study of British history in the 20th century and still often today. It is true that the histories of the kingdoms of Scotland and Ireland are inextricably linked with the story of the Civil War. But since the English Civil War is the most commonly used term today, I'll stick with that for the purposes of my narration. The last time we looked at England in detail was the famous Spanish Armada of 1588, the first of several naval expeditions directed against Elizabethan England, as part of an intermittent conflict known to history as the Anglo-Spanish Wars. By the turn of the century, both sides were financially exhausted, so the accession of Numelux, Philip III in Spain and James I of England gave an opportunity to find a way to a peace. Which was agreed in the year 1604. James I was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a cousin of Elizabeth I. In 1567, at the age of just 13 months, James succeeded to the Scottish throne after his mother was compelled to abdicate. And in 1603, at the age of 37, he succeeded the last Tudor monarch of England and Ireland, Elizabeth I, who died childless. In May 1603, James rode towards London to accept the crown, but the capital at that moment was suffering from a particularly bad wave of the plague, which by the end of that summer had claimed the lives of 30,000 citizens. A grand state entry had been planned for 25th of July to mark the coronation, but the fear of infected crowds curtailed the ceremony. There was a crowning but no state procession. Physically the king was not very impressive, he was awkward and hesitant in manner, his legs were slightly bowed and his gait erratic, he liked to talk and could be witty, and he retained a broad Scottish accent. For his attire he preferred thickly padded doublets that might impede an assassin's dagger, a fear he had lived with since childhood. His new realm consisted of several parts. England was by far the most populous, numbering then about 4 million. The population of Scotland was just under a million, Wales about 380,000, and Ireland about 1.4 million. England was undergoing major changes in its pattern of commerce. In the 16th century, her principal export was woolen cloth, most of which went to European markets from London via Antwerp in the Spanish Netherlands. As Antwerp declined after suffering from the effects of the Dutch revolt against Spain, English merchants had to find new outlets. Helped by the peace agreed with Spain, Bristol and ports on the south began trading their wooden goods extensively in the Baltic as well as the North Sea, and English merchants were soon exploiting markets in Spain, Portugal and the Mediterranean. One of the greatest challenges for James was that each region had its own religious makeup. In England, the deliberately ambivalent Elizabethan settlement of religion had left a church that was doctrinally Protestant, but retained the institutional framework of the pre Reformation Church. From its beginning, there had been a committed Protestant minority, the Puritans, who aspired to complete a full Protestant Reformation. They saw increased lay control over ecclesiastical affairs and the further secularisation of church property. A distinctive feature of English religious beliefs was the fear of popery. fueled by horror stories of Catholic brutalities on the continent and the experience of the Spanish Armadas, the English came to believe their country was the special target of popish plotting, masterminded from Rome and led by the Jesuits to destroy their faith. A gunpowder plot of 1605, two years after James's coronation, and which is still remembered today in Britain at Bonfire Night every 5th of November, gave this fear a powerful boost. Scotland, meanwhile, was predominantly Presbyterian, a strain of Protestantism, influenced by Calvinism, but also with a large Catholic minority in the north. Ireland was overwhelmingly Catholic, where the established Anglican Church, the Church of Ireland, commanded the allegiance only of an English-speaking minority. The migration of Scottish Presbyterians into Ireland added further complications. King James was a firm Protestant but sought religious reconciliation, hoping that a peaceful settlement of the religious disagreements could be found. He actively enjoyed doctrinal discussion, and the first act of his reign was to bring together a small number of clerics at his palace of Hampton Court to debate matters of religious policy and principle. Five distinguished and learned Puritan ministers were matched against the leading ecclesiastics of the realm, among them the archbishop and eight bishops. The bishops were generally satisfied with the doctrines and the ceremonies of the established church. They argued for union of church and state, and put more trust in communal worship than in private prayer. The Puritans, on the other hand, were concerned more with private conscience. As described by Peter Aykroyd in his book Civil War, they, quote, abhorred the practice of confession and encouraged intensive self examination as well as self-discipline. They did not wish for a sacramental priesthood but a preaching ministry. They accepted the words of scripture as the source of all divine truth. Men and women of a Puritan tradition were utterly obedient to God's absolute will from which no ritual or sacrament could avert them. This lent them zeal and energy in their attempt to purify the world." In the religious discussions James was shrewd and judicious. He did not accede to the Puritans' demands for Calvinism, but he did accept their proposal for an improved translation of the Bible. The resulting King James the Bible was to go on to have more influence on the English language than any other work. Neil Oliver writes that, quote, no other literary accomplishment before or since has come so close to perfection. The King James Bible was the result of seven years of work by more than 50 scholars tasked by the monarch with producing a new translation, based on the original writings and the various translations already in existence at that time. Its prose has shaped and informed the very language of movements as profound as the independence of the United States of America and the campaign there for civil rights." It is estimated to be responsible for at least 257 idioms in English, to name just a few: alone to themselves, eye for an eye, at their wit's end, fell by the wayside, from strength to strength, scapegoat, the powers that be, and the two-edged sword. James's other main project in the first years of his reign was to unify his realm into one kingdom. For subjects, there would be common citizenship a common religion and common laws, and so he proclaimed that England and Scotland were to be known as Britain. To this end he had a number of flags designed, attempts to unite the saltire of St Andrew's Cross of Scotland with the English Cross of St George. But both the Scots and English had a strong sense of their own identity. James never convinced either that they were one people and his proposals for a single legal code and common monetary system were not taken up. For the time being, Britain remained an idea rather than a reality. In James's other inheritance, Ireland, after decades of engagement with the Tudors, English influence was spreading across the island. It had been a kingdom since 1541 and had a parliament, but one which only met with the king's permission and its legislation required consent of the King and his Privy Council in London. The network of administrative counties, a familiar element of life in modern Ireland, was now virtually complete. The beginning of James's reign coincided with Tyrone's Rebellion, also known as the Nine Years' War, not to be confused with the later Continental Nine Years' War. This rising of Gaelic lords, led by Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, with the help of Spanish aid, for a time being had all but eliminated English authority on the island. However, the English reversed the military situation, and in 1603 O'Neill and his supporters surrendered, leaving James in control of the whole country. In 1607 O'Neill and other Irish leaders left in the so-called Flight of the Earls, The English could really only exert direct control over Dublin and an area around it known as the Pale. Their rule over the rest of the island depended on compliance of Gaelic and Anglo-Irish lords. James actively extended a policy of the Tudors, plantation. This involved placing English settlers into strategically important areas on land taken from native Irish and introducing English agriculture, language, law and Protestantism. As part of the policy of trying to Anglicise the Irish, the Church of England undertook the task of converting the natives. James's most pressing problem as king was public finance. In theory, in peacetime, the Crown funded the government of the country using its traditional hereditary revenues from land, feudal Jews and customs. Only in times of war was it allowed to seek extra tax revenues through Parliament. However, over the course of the 16th century, inflation and warfare meant that the English monarchy was underfunded in peacetime. Parliament blamed any shortfall on extravagant court expenditure and corruption. James tried to work out an agreement with Parliament in 1610 called the Great Contract, whereby Parliament, in return for royal concessions, would grant him a lump sum of £600,000 to pay off his debts plus an annual grant of £200,000. Negotiations became so protracted that James eventually lost patience and dismissed Parliament on the 31st of December 1610. The same pattern was repeated with the so-called Parliament of 1614, which James dissolved after a mere nine weeks when the Commons hesitated to grant him the money he requested. James then ruled without Parliament until 1621 when arose the crisis of the Thirty Years' War. As ruler of the leading Protestant power and as father in law of Frederick V, the Elector Palatinate, he could not stand aside. His overriding aim was to negotiate a settlement, but even diplomacy was expensive. The calling of Parliament in 1621, principally to provide funding, exposed divisions across the ruling elite over which policies to pursue, basically diplomacy or war. There was common agreement that England had an obligation to help Frederick regain his throne, but whereas James, who saw the problem as dynastic, Rather than religious, strove to reverse it through friendship with Spain. Puritans favoured a resumption of the Elizabethan naval war and an assault on Spanish possessions in the Caribbean. In November 1621, Parliament framed a petition asking not only for war with Spain, but also for Prince Charles to marry a Protestant and for enforcement of the anti-Catholic laws. This turned into a constitutional issue as James believed Parliament was attempting to interfere in matters of royal prerogative and again dissolved Parliament. In his later years, James suffered increasingly from arthritis, gout and kidney stones and drank heavily, leaving him an increasingly peripheral figure, rarely able to visit London. He felt seriously ill in March 1625, suffered a stroke and died shortly afterwards. For all his flaws, he had largely retained the affection of his people, who had enjoyed uninterrupted peace and comparatively low taxation during his reign. During his reign, the golden age of Elizabethan literature and drama continued, with writers such as William Shakespeare Ben Johnson and Sir Francis Bacon contributing to a flourishing literary culture. Sir Francis Bacon was an English philosopher and statesman, whose works are credited with developing the scientific method which helped advance the scientific revolution which was about to take place. He argued for the possibility of scientific knowledge based upon inductive reasoning and careful observation of events in nature. Also under James, the English colonisation of North America started its course with the foundation of Jamestown, Virginia, in 1607 and Cooper's Cove, Newfoundland, in 1610. By actively pursuing more than just a personal union of his realms, he also helped lay the foundations for unitary British state. In spite of his best efforts, James was unable to resolve religious tensions within his kingdom, nor differences between the Crown and Parliament, but he kept his realm at peace and passed it on to his son, Charles I, in a reasonably stable condition. Charles's reign which followed was anything but stable, the time of civil war. been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As ever, you can get in touch with me on the Facebook page or writing directly to Carl, with a C, at historyeurope.net. I leave you for today with a piece of music called The Silver Swan by Orlando Gibbons. It was published in 1612 and presents the legend that swans sing only just before their deaths, i.e. their swan song. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you can join me next week for the next part of the story of the English Civil War.